0: So good. Well, as you grab a seat, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1. Uh, really want you to have a Bible with you every time we study it so you know that I'm not just making this up, but, but really you know what the Word of God has to say. So that can be on your phone, physical, hard cop- uh, copy of the Bible, whatever that is. Because here's what I want to recognize, again, right at the beginning, especially if you missed um, sort of some of our introductory comments at the beginning or right up top, or, or if you didn't hear them or weren't paying attention or whatever. Uh, we're, we're obviously in a really modified state right now, and, and here's what we said. These modifications, meaning face masks and social distancing and being outside and everything we're doing right now it is for now but it's not forever okay like this is a temporary reality not a permanent one there will come a day where you don't have to wear this obnoxious face mask on your face and there will come a day we can hug one another and we're not like stop it but like there will come that day where we're back inside and we get to do church like we're used to uh, and yet God's going to do this new thing and yet here's just what I want to try to articulate tonight Um, There's all of these changes, all of these different things when we're back together now after 16 weeks or 15 weeks of not being together. Um, But here is what's going to remain exactly the same here at YA. Uh, Like here at YA, we are always going to build everything we do around Jesus. Here at Young Adults on Thursday nights, we're still going to worship We're still going to lift our voices up to God. And finally, and maybe most importantly, what we're going to do every time we gather is gather around God's word and see what God might have to say for us. So that's not going to stop Um, just because we're modified. The modifications do not affect God's word and his power and what he wants to do here with us tonight. So uh, again, Mark chapter 1, if you've been tracking with us on the live stream, you know that we're a couple of weeks into a series on the Gospel of Mark, and we haven't made it very far at all, uh, but we're just kind of walking through this story of Jesus' life and doing really everything we can uh, to try to understand who this Jesus is, this Son of God. Uh, and so again, I want you to be in Mark chapter 1. We'll start in verse 14. Um, here's how what we're going to read tonight. Again, we're not going to get very far at all, but we'll see uh, where we go tonight. So Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, after John was put in prison... And so Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 begins with this reference to John, and he's getting put in prison. And if you heard us last week, if you tuned in at all, we're talking about John the Baptist, not John the guy who wrote the Gospel of John, but John the Baptist, who is this forerunner to Jesus. He was the individual who said, someone is coming who is greater than me, and John the Baptist paves the way, directs the way, and points the way toward Jesus and what we learn about John the Baptist here in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14 is that as his ministry starts to wane, Jesus' ministry starts to climb. And so what Mark is trying to do here is he's trying to make a point that Mark, that John the Baptist was not there to point to himself, but rather to point towards someone greater. John the Baptist himself in the gospel of John is going to say, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And that's exactly what happens here. He's thrown into prison. And if you know the stories in the other gospels, what, what happens is this, he's thrown into prison and then john the baptist is ultimately beheaded this is the story of john the baptist this faithful one who god sends to point to jesus this faithful one who does everything he's supposed to do and yet our story tonight really begins with the guy doing everything he's supposed to do being thrown in prison and beheaded and here's why i think this is significant for us to pause and think about tonight I think it's important for us to consider the fact that the faithful men and women of God in Scripture don't always have a successful outcome. That faithfulness to God does not mean everything is going to go well in your life and in your story. In fact, I would put it this way. The people of God should never expect the approval of the world. The people of God, which is us right here, should never expect that just because we're faithful to God, everyone else is going to approve of us. Everyone else is going to buy into us. The people of God should not expect that. And so listen to me. This is why this is so significant, because there have been generation after generation after generation of Christians, mostly young Christians do this, by the way. So I want us to listen closely. Young Christians who say, if we just edit Jesus a little bit, everyone will love him. So if we were just a little nicer or sanded off some of the edges of the gospel or didn't say some of the hard things that the Bible taught, if we just kind of push those under the rug and don't talk about them, then everyone will love us. And here's what I need you to know. That if you are going to be faithful to Jesus you will end up walking after Jesus. And in case you've forgotten the story of Jesus, Jesus' story doesn't end well initially, right? Jesus' story ends with him being bloody and crucified and murdered, okay? That's where it leads for us. So this expectation you might have as a Christian of if I'm just cool enough, if I'm one of the nice Christians, if I'm not one of those weird Christians, you think everyone's going to approve of you. I just want to talk you out of that with everything I can tonight. In fact, here's the encouragement of what I want you to avoid. I want us to resist the temptation to change our faith so it neatly fits with the culture around you. I want you to resist that temptation. I want you to resist the idea that your faith should fit neatly in 21st century American culture because it won't. It was never meant to. It wasn't built that way. The idea isn't to get everyone around us to approve of Calvary Community Church. I want you to know no one's ever going to approve of Calvary Community Church unless they first approve of Jesus and that's who we're after anyway. That's our call. Don't water down your faith. Don't take things out. Don't shy away from the hard things. Here's John the Baptist and he is faithful to the very end. One of the great heroes of the faith and yet he gets arrested, thrown in prison. And yet his getting arrested and being thrown in prison sets up the ministry of Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus does spectacular things with people who are willing to risk everything to declare what is true about the Son of God. It goes on this way in Mark 1, 14. It says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee. So Galilee is this place you might hear about if you start reading the Gospels. And if you ever go to Israel on one of these trips that we take as a church or on your own or with a different group, you'll know that Galilee is a pretty simple place that you can go to. It's not spectacular. It's not interesting. In fact, it's kind of this like little backwater place that no one's ever really heard of. Like if it weren't for Jesus and the Bible, you never would have heard of Galilee It's not a special place. It's not a big city. It's not a spectacular thing. Galilee is this tiny little nowhere town. And the only thing significant about it is that's where Jesus grew up. That's where his family was. Like the only thing that's significant about Galilee is that that's where Jesus grew up. That's where Jesus calls home. So, again, if you were here with us last week, and if you weren't, just look a few verses up in the Bible. Jesus gets baptized. The the sky splits open. God speaks, You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days. He's tempted by Satan, overcomes Satan. And then, what does he do after this spectacular moment in his life? He goes back home. That's where he goes. And I need us to remember this tonight, and maybe I can especially speak to those of you who are having the college experience, and I know that's not all of you, I know some of you are past that, but for those of you who are in college, and you're having this wonderful college experience in the state or the town of your choosing, and everything was spectacular, and then COVID hits, and they ship you back home, and now you're not even sure if you're going back in the fall, here's what I need to speak to you tonight, that those who want to be fruitful in public must first be faithful in private. That if you are not willing and if you are not able to say, I'm going to be faithful to the call of God in my life, not just when I'm off at college, not just when I'm part of the crew ministry or part of varsity or part of the Bible study or church, I'm there. But if you're not willing to be faithful in private, in the small place, in the unknown place, At your home, with your sister, with your mom, with your brother, with your dad who kind of gives you a weird look every time you say you're going to church. If you're not able to be faithful in this kind of place, God is never going to set you up to be fruitful in a public way. What we need to be is the type of people who say, wherever God puts me in this next season, I'm going to be faithful. College students, if he's not sending you back to your campus this fall, you know what you get to be? You get to be faithful at home. For those of you who want to go to work and you you, you want to go to your office and you want to be a part of that culture, but it hasn't opened yet and you can't go back there, you know what you get to be? Faithful at home. for for some of you who had a big trip planned or a big thing you were going to do, some big experience on your mind, you get to be faithful at home. Jesus makes a promise. He says, if you're faithful with the little things, I'll give you the big things. And perhaps, Calvary, this is a season where we can be faithful with the small things. Faithful of what God has in front of us. Faithful with your mom. Faithful with your dad. Faithful with your roommates. Faithful in the little so that God would give us the big things. This is the story of Jesus. Jesus' ministry doesn't begin in the big city. It doesn't begin in Rome or Jerusalem or some global city that would impress you. It begins in Galilee. This tiny little place he grew up that no one has ever heard of. It goes on this way in verse 14. It says, after John was put in prison, it'll say, Jesus went into Galilee and he is proclaiming The good news of God. Jesus' ministry begins in one way. It doesn't begin with a miracle. It doesn't begin with Jesus doing something spectacular. It doesn't begin with Jesus showing off his awesome power as the Son of God. How does it begin? It begins with Jesus proclaiming something. Jesus is proclaiming a reality. He is talking about something. And this talking Jesus expects those of us who want to live in love like him to do the same thing in our hometown in our spaces. I always wanna remind us that the gospel, the good news of Jesus that we proclaim and stand upon here is a proclaimed kind of gospel. It is something you communicate by talking about it. We come from different church backgrounds and some of you didn't grow up here at this church, but if you grew up in the high school ministry under my leadership or our leadership here at this church, you'll know a phrase we have never really liked that kind of floats out there in the Christian world from time to time uh, is the phrase, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. So maybe you've heard that one. You're like, preach at all times, but sometimes use words. And the only objection I have to that is the Bible, okay? That's my big objection to that phrase. Uh, Like the Bible is constantly going to be talking about the gospel as something that is preached, it is proclaimed, it is heralded, it is declared. It is something we speak with our mouths. Should your lifestyle line up to that? Absolutely. Should you serve in ways where you're not even talking about Jesus, you're just serving? Absolutely. But what I found is that phrase tends to serve as an escape hatch for the person who's too afraid of getting rejected to talk about Jesus. And I want you to talk about Jesus. I want you to tell people about Jesus. I want you to tell people about what Jesus has done in your life and what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and I want you to invite people into it. Like here's a question, I don't need you to answer me tonight, I just need you to reflect on this. A, little, a week ago, a week ago tonight, I stood on the stage in there and I announced we have wonderful news for you. A week from tonight, this night here, we're gonna be meeting again for YA. And I'm sure there was some excitement for some of you. You're like, yes, I've been waiting for this moment. I'm thrilled to come back to church. I can't wait to do this. So you went online and you did our stupid form and thanks for doing the stupid form. You did the thing and you filled it out. And You're like, I have to wear a mask and you got a mask. And we said you have to social distance and you're trying your very best and you've done all of that and you're here. But, but here's the question. I'm just gonna ask if it's occurred to you yet. Because it occurred to you when you heard churches back open, I need to bring someone with me. I I need to bring someone in here. Someone needs to come with me tonight. Because if the good news is being proclaimed, someone else in this world needs to hear that. And and listen, I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to say, so do better. Like, okay, do better. Okay, let's worship. Like, that's not how tonight goes. But, But here's what I want you to remember this summer. Like, we believe in a proclaiming Jesus, a proclaiming gospel. Let's use this summer to invite people in. Sure, there are going to be people in your life who aren't comfortable coming into crowds yet. Fair enough. Respect that and honor that. But there are people in your life who like aren't interested in Jesus at all they just really want to get out of the house, and you say, "I have the perfect opportunity for you." They're like, "What do you have to do? You have to come, listen to some people sing. Some guy's gonna yell at you for thirty minutes, and then we'll go home." And they'll be like, "That sounds great." And you bring them here, but then here's where you're involved. The goal isn't I proclaim the gospel. The goal is you bring them here, and then you take them to In and Out after you pay for their food, and you ask this simple question. Write this down. What'd you think? That's what you ask. And you let them speak and then you dialogue and you talk about it and you process. This is what it means for us to be a proclaiming ministry that we're talking about it with our friends, not just asking the pastors to proclaim it, but that we are talking about Jesus. I just wanna challenge you this summer. Be bringing people here. Bring people here to hear about Jesus. Bring people to sit in this outdoor area and see lives transformed because Jesus' ministry begins not with some miracle, not with some crazy thing he did, not with him flexing his eternal power, but with him proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what he said, the very first words of Jesus um, coming out here in the gospel of Mark, verse 15. He says, the time has come. The time has come. This is this interesting interplay that we have in the scriptures of when Jesus came. And that might not seem like an interesting question to you, but it's actually an interesting question to the authors of the Bible. You see, the entire Old Testament, there was this promise that God was going to deliver and redeem and rescue his people. And for all of this time, hundreds of years, centuries, there's people waiting for God to fulfill that promise. And so the biggest question to people before Jesus wasn't who is coming, it's when is God coming? When is he going to rescue? When is he going to save? When is he going to do this thing? And God had his timing exactly right. In fact, God had his timing so perfectly right, the people living in the first century when Jesus came wouldn't have even realized how perfect God's timing was. Like this gets into some history, but I think it's fascinating. Some of you will appreciate this. If you ever look at a history, if you ever look at a chart, like a line chart, I think it's called, lines, right? Okay, you look at a chart of the population of the earth. This is so cool. You you look at this and really like throughout all of human history, if this is zero, it's like here, okay? It's like nothing, like no one was alive. The earth had no one on it. And then Jesus comes and what you can just watch is the population just exponentially increases from the time Jesus was here. What a remarkable thing that God sends Jesus right then, right as the world is about to explode with people to plant the seeds of the gospel in that time. What a remarkable thing that Jesus comes right in the midst of the Roman Empire, which for the first time in recorded history connected so much of the earth, more of the earth than had ever been connected before. And people could travel. People could travel safely. People could plant churches and use roads and travel to different cities and announce the good news of Jesus. That couldn't have happened 200 years before. It wouldn't have happened 200 years later. God sends Jesus at the right time. He sends it at the right time when people are starting to get fascinated with this written language called Greek, and it's been translated everywhere. Everyone's reading it. The language is everywhere, and so the Gospels get written down in Greek. God sends Jesus at the perfect time, and I need you to see this tonight because there's a principle that was true for Jesus that's true for your life as well, and here's the principle I need you to see tonight, that to trust God is to trust God's timing. To trust God is to trust God's timing. For the people of God who are saying, God, you promised you were going to send a savior, a messiah, someone to rescue and redeem your people. And they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting on God's timing. For them to trust God was to trust God's timing. You can't say I fully trust God. I'm just getting impatient on his timing. That's a contradiction in terms. Because what we know in the scriptures is there's going to come a day where God makes everything right. There's no more weeping or pain or crying or mourning. There's no more anxiety. There's no more depression. There's no more I wonder if this is going to happen. God's going to make everything right one day. And yet for us to be a people who trust God is to trust his timing, to trust his eternal timing, and then listen to trust his timing among us. Like do you know that God knew this was the date we would be back like a bazillion years ago? He knew how this was all going to come together. He knew how long you could tolerate being away from church before you went absolutely crazy. He knew that. And do you know that God has everything in your life timed out exactly when he needs it to happen? Like if you're waiting on a job or you're not sure if you're gonna get a promotion or a relocation, God knows what's gonna happen. To trust God is to trust his timing on your life. To trust God is to trust his timing on your job. To trust God is to trust his timing on your school or your grad school. Maybe I could speak to someone and meddle in your life a little bit. To trust God is to trust God's timing on when you're gonna get married. Yeah, yeah. To trust God is to trust God's timing on when you're going to have kids. To trust God is to trust God's timing on everything. Like to the college student who's just trying to navigate, okay, what does the fall look like? And did my college get messed up? Do you know that God chose to have you in college right now? Like he didn't choose to have you in college 10 years ago or 10 years from now. He chose right now because God's timing was right and he knew you could handle it and he knew you would do something spectacular if you would trust his timing Tonight, I need to speak to someone who needs to trust God's timing, who needs to believe that God's timing is always right, and that to trust God is to trust his timing. Here's how it goes on in the back half of verse 15. It says that the time has come, he said. This is Jesus speaking. The kingdom of God has come near. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. So you'll hear this phrase in the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God. And then if you read, say, say for example, the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see references to the kingdom of heaven. So you got the kingdom of God and you got the kingdom of heaven. What I want to suggest to you tonight, if I can teach for a moment here, is that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven are synonyms in the Bible. They're not describing two different realities, but one and the same. It's like when I say to you, we trust the name of Jesus, and I say we trust Jesus. I'm referring to the same reality. When I say praise God and praise the Lord, I'm referring to the same reality. When I say the people of God and his church, I'm referring to the same reality. And when the scriptures talk about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, they're speaking about the same reality. And here's the initial declaration of Jesus Christ at the beginning of his ministry. He says the kingdom of God has come near Like in other words, what he's describing is whatever this kingdom of God, whatever this kingdom of heaven is, it's coming near to us. And I think this is an important part of understanding the kingdom of God because here's what the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God is not a location. The kingdom of God is not the heaven you go to when you die. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus Christ wherever it manifests. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is any place where Jesus Christ is Lord, where Jesus Christ is King and people submit to him as that. That is true in heaven. Like if you imagine heaven right now, if you imagine the glories of heaven, everyone there is on board with Jesus and his will for their life and their future. And I want you to imagine this, that Jesus in his great prayer, what does he pray? He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. In other words, The answer to that prayer is the kingdom of heaven on earth. The kingdom of heaven is on earth when the reality, the rule, the reign of Jesus comes here. Like, let me put it to you this way the kingdom is present where the king presides. The kingdom is present where the king presides. So anywhere where you have King Jesus ruling and reigning over the hearts of his people, that is where the kingdom of heaven is made manifest. It's not a place we go to. It's a reality that comes here. Let me make this personal for you. Anytime that you choose to pray and trust God rather than panic and freak out about a situation, that's the kingdom of God being made manifest in your life. Anytime you decide you are going to read the Bible and trust what it has to say and listen to Jesus and walk in obedience, that is the kingdom of God being made manifest in your life. Anytime you choose to resist temptation, you go home tonight or this weekend or next week and the temptation hits you and you choose to resist that, that is the kingdom of God in a small but significant way being made manifest in your life. It happens in our church. When we're gathered here tonight and we're singing songs of praise, that is the kingdom of God being made manifest. That is King Jesus being lifted up, and in a small and mysterious way, the kingdom of God is present here tonight. When we open up the Bible together, when we learn together, and we grow together, that's the kingdom of God made manifest. When we love each other despite our differences, our different backgrounds, our different issues and stories and lives and families, when the people of God live in unity, that's the kingdom of God made manifest. And then it happens on the individual level, it happens in the church, and let me tell you, it happens on a global, societal, culture level. Like when justice happens in the world, when the right thing happens in a culture, in a country, in a nation, a kingdom, a society, that's the kingdom of God made manifest. When the poor are served and loved, that is the kingdom of God made manifest. When the people on the margins of society are cared for and loved like God cares for and loves them, that's the kingdom of God made manifest. Here's my point. The kingdom of God is not a place we go to someday. It is a place that comes to us. The kingdom is present where the king presides. Wherever Jesus is ruling, wherever things are going the way God would have them, that is the kingdom of God made manifest in our world. And what we do as Christians is not build the kingdom, construct the kingdom, or make the kingdom. We reveal the kingdom by showing and revealing the king, Jesus. And here's the good news of the gospel. Here is the hope of the church, the blessed hope we all wait for. There will come a day where Jesus Christ cracks the sky and every eye will see him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will return in glory and set up a kingdom that will last for a thousand years. Like ultimately the great hope of the church is that the kingdom of God is just popping up all over the place, but one day it will be complete. The way theologians put it is this, that the kingdom is already come, but it is not complete. Like the kingdom is already here, but not yet complete. It has already come into this world. This is what Jesus is announcing that the king is here and people are going to start living in obedience to the king. But there will come a day when that is complete. That is what we look forward to one day the reality of the rule and reign of Jesus eternally, perfectly, everlasting in this world, in where we live. This is the blessed hope of the church that there will come a day where the king's coming back and his kingdom will reign forevermore. Here's how it goes on this way Uh, in verse 15, and um, this is kind of where we'll wrap up tonight. He says, repent. He he says, the kingdom of God is near, and then Jesus gives a command. This is the first command that Jesus is giving. He he says, the kingdom of God has come near, and so he says, repent. Repent repent is this Greek word, metanoia, and the idea behind repentance, if you grew up in church, maybe you just heard a lot of different ways, the idea behind repentance isn't that you regret something, it's not that just you feel bad about something, it is that you make a change, you turn, you go in a different direction, the best visual I can give of repentance is this, if this is who God is, we'll just make this up for a moment, and you choose to walk away in sin, repentance is this, that I am going my own direction in sin, but to repent, is to plant my foot in the ground, to turn around and return back to Jesus. This is repentance. Repentance is I'm walking away from God and I plant my foot in the ground, I turn around and I come back to Jesus. Repentance isn't I'm walking in sin and I feel bad about it repentance isn't I'm walking in sin and I beat myself up about it repentance isn't that I try to earn my way back to God it's that I recognize he's already earned my way back for me through the cross and so I plant my foot in the ground I stop doing what I'm doing and I turn back to Jesus and this is such a significant word for us metanoia repentance this is a word that you forget at your peril This is not one of those optional words, this is not one of those things that like crazy Christians say when they say repent. Maybe you saw a guy at a Laker game with a sign that said repent and you're like, I never wanna be that guy, so I'll never use the word. Okay, he also had Jesus on the sign, so you gotta use the word, okay? The word repent is so significant because it's the type of culture we wanna have here at this church. It is a culture of repentance, a culture of us turning from our sin and back toward God. Here's what I've observed. And maybe you can observe this with me. Uh, It seems to me that our world, 21st century America, has really two ways of dealing with sin. Two ways of dealing with with the nonsense that goes on in our life. Two ways of dealing with sin, even if they won't call it sin. Here's the first way I've noticed. Um, The first is what I would call like a you-do-you culture, right? And you've all heard this. And no one actually believes this, but sometimes we say this to make people feel good about whatever they're doing. We're like, you-do-you and so it's like, okay, I'm going to go to the library tonight. And we're like, cool, you, you do you. Or, or someone says, I'm going to go out to a bar and get wasted. And you go, you, you do you. And, and you like have a certain limit of you do you. If someone's like, I'm going to go take drugs until I can't see straight. You usually are like, do you do you? Like you're not sure. But you're like, you got, like that's kind of this idea. And, and here's what I need you to know. Like the way of Jesus is not a you do you kind of culture. That's not what the way of Jesus is. But like, let me tell you something. This idea of you just go do however you want to do, live however you want to live, that is not the way of Jesus. And I need to say this to someone tonight that's not the way of love. It's not. You are not loving to someone by saying you go do you and hurt yourself however you want to hurt yourself. If someone is walking off the edge of a cliff and you go you do you, you might think that is loving. You are not loving in that moment. And if you watch them go off a cliff because you don't want to be judgmental and you don't want to warn them that they might be destroying their lives, You're not loving, you're a coward. You're afraid of their judgment. The you-do-you culture is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not you watching a Christian brother or sister walk in sin and just going, well, I don't wanna be mean so I don't wanna say anything. It is not the culture of Jesus. So there's this you-do-you, right? But here's the other solution our culture came up with. We had you do you, and that doesn't work because no one actually believes you do you. And everything we've seen in our culture means no one actually believes you do you. So we've come up with another idea, and here's the other idea. If you do you is one solution to sin, the other solution that our culture has come up with is what everyone knows is called cancel culture, right? And here's the idea you're canceled, you're done. You did something you shouldn't have done. You said something you shouldn't have said. You posted something you shouldn't have posted and you're done forever. We have no more use for you as a culture, as a world, as a society. And here's what I want you to know. But like the whole cancel culture thing really has come out of like, there are certain things that have gone on in this world that have gone unchecked and untalked about. And so in no way do I want to dismiss, like we should hold people, especially people in power and with public platforms to account, okay? And so no way am I trying to dismiss this, but here's what I'm trying to tell you. The idea that if you sinned, therefore you are of no use to us anymore and we cast you away may work for the world it doesn't work for the church, okay? That's not us. That's not what we're about here. That is not what we do. Cancel culture is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not you're canceled because you did one thing wrong. You're useless to us because you did one thing wrong. There's no redemption for you because you did a thing wrong, because you sent a tweet, because you said a thing, because you did a thing. That is not the way of Jesus. So here's what I've observed. The world has two ways of dealing with sin even when it won't call it sin. The first is you do you. This sort of libertarian, you do whatever you want. I'm not gonna get in your way. I'm never gonna talk about morals. I'm never gonna talk about values. I'm just gonna let you do your thing. The other is this weird kind of puritanism where it's like if you ever do one thing wrong in your entire life, we will destroy you. Which is really interesting, right? My wife was pointing out to me a couple days ago how like five years ago in our culture, you'll all remember this. Remember when the anti-hero was a thing? We were kind of into the idea that like you be authentic and you don't be perfect and perfect wasn't what we're after. And everyone was kind of into that for like five seconds. But now that's gone. Now it's like if you've ever done anything wrong ever, you are gone forever, cast out of society. We never wanna hear from you again. So here's what I need you to know. The world has two ways of dealing with sin and both are utterly insufficient. One leads to people's destruction and guess what the other leads to? People's destruction. That's the only answer the world has. The only answer, you ever notice this? The only answer the world has to your sin is destruction. But the gospel has a different answer altogether. You see, the way of Jesus is not you-do-you culture. The way of Jesus is not cancel culture. The way of Jesus is repentance culture. That's the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is we are willing to call you on your sin, call you on your wickedness, call you on your mistakes, call you on the things you did that have brought harm to others, that have brought down pain and suffering in your life and the life of others. But the way of Jesus is to say that's not the end of the story. This is just the moment where you plant your foot in the ground. You turn around and you return to Jesus. So you need to know the way of Jesus is not cancel culture. It's not you do you culture. It's repentance culture. It's where we turn back to God. That's what we want to create here tonight. That's what we want to create here at this church. A culture where we look at each other and we call each other on our sin. Because guess what? I hate to break it to everyone. You're a sinner and you need a holy God. You've fallen short. You're not perfect. You're not even an anti-hero. You're just anti, okay? Like this, you have not made it in this world. You are not spectacularly perfect. But the good news of Jesus is you don't have to be. You just have to be repentant. So here's what I need you to know, that regret leaves you stuck in the past. And on this side, there's a regret because you just say, you go do you and the person does and then they regret their decisions and it's pain. And the person over here who's canceled and we say, we cancel you, they live in regret for their rest of their lives. See, regret leaves you stuck in the past. But here's what I need someone to know tonight, even if it's just one person, that repentance opens the door for your future. That's what repentance does. Repentance says you don't have to live in your sin anymore. You don't have to live in that breakup anymore. You don't have to live in what you did back in high school, and everyone knew about it, and everyone talked about it, and you've worn that forever. You don't have to live there anymore. You don't have to live in your addiction. You don't have to live in your greatest moment of shame. You don't have to live there anymore. That's not you anymore. See, repentance opens a door for your future. And, and tonight, here's where I, where I want to end. Here, here, here's what I want to do. I, I want to speak to someone who needs that door open for them tonight. I wanna speak to someone who's been living in the regret of their past, who's living in the regret of what's happened and the regret of what's gone on in their life. And I wanna invite someone tonight into repentance. So, So here's what I have to wonder. It's our first time back in 16 weeks, right? I think for some of you, this has gone really well for your faith. Like you've actually thrived in quarantine. You've read your Bible more than ever. You've prayed more than ever. You tuned into a live stream. You've really spent the time working on your soul and thinking about your heart and growing in the Lord. But let me speak to the person who's the opposite of that story tonight. Let me speak to the person who quarantined. This whole time away from church hasn't gone well for your faith. Maybe you've fallen into an addiction, a temptation, a sin. Maybe you've walked in patterns you hoped you'd never do. Maybe temptation has overcome you. Maybe substances have overcome you. And the way you coped with the anxiety of the world was just drink till you can't see straight or take pills until you can't think clearly anymore. To the person who's been walking in their sh- sin and walking in their shame, walking in a sexual sin where that's just how you cope with the world. To, to the person who's been lying, who's been deceitful, who, who's committed fraud, who's been angry, who's been bitter, who's been prideful, I want to speak to you tonight and open the door for your future. Not so you live in the regret of the past, so you walk in the open door of repentance. Some of you have not cracked your Bibles in weeks. Some of you listened to the live stream months ago and then just kind of faded away and you've just been aimlessly wandering. Some of you haven't prayed in longer than you'd like to admit. Some of you aren't sure where your Bibles are. You've lost track of Jesus. You've drifted away from him. Jesus hasn't moved. You have. And here's what I don't want to leave you in. I don't want to leave you in the shame of this past. I don't want to leave you in the shame of the last 15 weeks. I want to open the door tonight to repentance to your future, a good and a glorious future where the King of kings and the Lord of lords opens his arms wide open and says, come home. Come home tonight. So here's the invitation. The invitation for someone here tonight is that to confess and to repent is to choose joy. That's what the invitation is for you tonight to confess your sin, to say, God, I've fallen short, and to repent, to say, God, I've been wandering from you. I've been drifting from you. This time hasn't been good. 2020 has been a disaster for my faith, but I confess it. I plant my foot in the ground, and I repent, and I turn back to you. Like, Let me put it this way. Um, Recently, I had a moment with my car, and that might sound like a strange sentence, but it was an important thing for me. Recently, I had a moment where I recognized my car was a disaster. It was filled with bags of food, and when I say bags of food, it's only from two sacred places, and that is Chipotle and Chick-fil-A, and it was filled with bags and filled with gross, and then cups that I threw in there, and then in the morning, I'd be eating something, and I'd throw a Tupperware dish in there, and suddenly, it was just gross beyond reckoning. Can we have a little confession time at church tonight? Who here drove here in a filthy, messy car tonight? Okay, hands higher, come on, come on, own it. Own it, we're at church, okay. Let, Let me ask the opposite side. Who's like, my car is never messy in its extension of me? Okay, we don't like you. Okay, here's what happened. My car got to this filthy, disgusting level. I was embarrassed to have people in it. You ever do that with the messy car? You're like shoveling trash into the back, trying to get it away. I had that. And here's what I noticed. It didn't happen in one day, right? It was just like I ate a Chipotle bowl and then had the trash and just tossed it. Or I was eating a biscuit from Chick-fil-A on the way into work and I had the wrapper and I tossed it. I had a coffee cup and I tossed it into the side and it grows and it grows and it grows. It didn't happen in one day. Slowly but surely, without me even intending to do it, the junk was accumulating and it came to this breaking point where I realized I needed a deep clean of my car. It came to this breaking point where I realized I couldn't just feel gross about my car anymore. I would actually clean it. And let me invite someone here tonight who needs a deep clean of their soul this evening. Who, who's not, you didn't intend to, you didn't intend to drift away from Jesus. You weren't trying to fall into sin. You didn't think all of this stuff is accumulating, but you're back here tonight looking back on this season of being away from church and you're going, it's accumulate. My soul is full of junk. I've been wandering from God. I don't feel close to him anymore. And you know what the beautiful invitation for you tonight is? You don't have to feel guilty and sit in your shame and sit in the past on that. Like, like you didn't come to church. God didn't bring you here tonight so you could feel guilty. God brought you here tonight so you could repent and feel joy. That's the invitation of the gospel. And I just really believe with all my heart, the Holy Spirit of God has someone here tonight, maybe multiple someones who need to just repent. Not to repent to me. You don't owe me anything. You, you don't owe us your repentance. But like God wants your repentance so he can open that door to your future. God wants that repentance because to confess and to repent is to choose joy. And I wanna invite some of you to do that right now. I wanna invite you to do some business with God. We're, we're gonna close in some songs like we always do. But right now, I just believe in all my heart there's someone here, maybe multiple someones who need to do some business with God. So here's what I want you to do all over this patio out here. Would you just close your eyes right now? Just close your eyes, bow your heads. I'm asking you to do this, not because anything special happens when you close your eyes or bow your heads, but because some of you haven't actually taken the time to really examine your soul, to see if there's junk building up in there, to see if it's gotten messy, to see if you need this deep clean. And here's what I want you to do tonight. We're gonna take just a moment with our eyes closed and our heads bowed. I'm not gonna say a word. I just want you to do some business with God. Psalm 51 says, God, reveal any wicked ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe that's your prayer. God, just reveal if there's anything in my heart tonight that I need to turn from. And God, lead me in the way of joy. Lead me in the way everlasting. Just take a moment before the Lord to do that. You know, with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, I want to give some of you an opportunity to respond tonight. Um, Repentance only matters if it costs you something. Uh, Like repentance doesn't matter if you just feel kind of bad at church tonight and then move on. And maybe it's gonna cost you some things you need to give up or some things you need to stop doing or some people you need to stop hanging with. But at the very least, maybe tonight it would cost you a moment where you out yourself as a sinner in need of repentance. Not because you're worse than everyone, but because you wanna choose joy and the path to your future tonight. And so here's what I'm gonna ask all around this place with eyes closed and head bowed, if tonight is the night you need to repent, whatever it's been, maybe it's been you drifting, maybe it's been you walking in sin, maybe it's been you just kind of in a place where you haven't felt close to Jesus in months. But if that's you tonight, I'm gonna invite you to do the courageous step in just a moment of saying I need to repent And on three, I just want you to open your eyes and look straight at me. If tonight you need to repent, one, two, three. I see you all across the space. It's not for everyone. Maybe you're doing great. Maybe you don't need to repent tonight. Praise the Lord for that. But if you're looking at me right now, I want you to know something. I want you to know something spectacular. Jesus' message is that the kingdom of God has come near. This rule and reign and reality of Jesus has come near. He's right in the very midst of this space right now. He's not far away. He's right here. And then he says, repent. But here's the most wonderful thing about the passage we looked at tonight. And everyone who's looking at me, I want you to look at these screens right now. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. In other words, it's not just repent and feel bad about yourself. It's not just repent and try harder. It's repent and believe that Jesus has already forgiven you. If your eyes are open and you're looking at me right now, I need to tell you on the authority of the word of God that your sin is forgiven finally, fully, forever. Jesus has dealt with your sin on the cross and there is no more shame for you to live in. That is the good news of the gospel. So to those of you looking at me right now saying tonight's the night I need to repent, God has already outed you as a sinner. And he outed you as a sinner when he sent his son Jesus to the cross. He outed all of us as sinners. And tonight, we repent. Not because we want to live in the past, but because we want the door to be open to our future. And so here's what I want to invite you to do. God's already outed you as a sinner. There's no secret. There's no mystery here. But if tonight you need to confess that I've been walking away from the Lord and I'm repenting, I am planting my foot in the ground and I'm returning to Jesus, I want it to cost you enough tonight that you would have the courage to stand right now. That you would have the courage to stand in this place and declare, my sin is behind me. My Jesus is before me. And so if that's you on three, I want you to stand to your feet. One, two, three, right now. Right now, wherever you're at. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to recognize that you weren't perfect in the first place. It's a beautiful thing to recognize that you didn't get saved because you were awesome. You got saved because Jesus was awesome. That's what we remember when we repent. I don't know your story. I don't know your sin. I don't know what you've walked in. I don't know what you've not walked in. But here's what I'm confident in. That there's a God who says, come There's a God who says, I want to transform 2020 from this year where you drifted away from me to the year where you were closer to me than you've ever been in your entire life, where God becomes closer than your very breath. That's the invitation of the gospel. Jesus' first words are the kingdom of God is not far away, it's near, it's right here. And we get to experience that not just on our own, but we get to experience that tonight together. Here's what I wanna do, stay standing right now. I wanna invite everyone else to stand with those who are repenting tonight. To stand to your feet right now. To stand to your feet right now because the people who are repenting, they don't do so alone. They do so in the context of a church. They do so in the context of a culture, in the context of a people that decide that repentance is what we value. Not perfection, not you do you, but we wanna value repentance. We wanna worship a God who accepts our repentance and who accepts us when we return home to him. Amen? Like, don't you want to be a part of a church like that? Don't you want to be a part of a community where people turn from their sin and turn to their Jesus and come back to a God whose arms are open wide for them? So here's what I want to believe. I want to believe that whatever 2020 has been so far, God can turn that grave into a garden. He can turn the sea into a highway. Because there's nothing better than Him, right? Like, God wants to invite you back in to a reality where you are closer to Him than you could possibly believe. The very first words of Jesus in Mark chapter 1 is this that the kingdom of God has come near. So repent and believe the good news. That's what I invite you to do as you sing tonight that your repentance will be received by a God who says you are most welcome to come before me. Nothing, it's better than you, Lord. There's nothing. It's better than you, Lord. There's nothing. And nothing is better than you